Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 109. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we're going back to the town. We're going back, Jack. To Halloween Town? We're going back to Halloween Town. As in Nightmare Before Christmas? As in, no, Halloween Town. Like Halloween Town, Halloween Town. Yeah, but Nightmare Before Christmas is the better Halloween Town. Yeah, okay, so we're we're just going to let you all yell at Jackie on social media. Some of you will, some of you won't. Uh, I'm I'm on the fence about whether I'm going to yell at you or not, but we're going back to Halloween Town. For Halloween Town 2, Calabar's Revenge. We went and talked about the first Halloween Town film last year around Halloween. This franchise has an incredible cult following. Now, when we discussed the movie last year, I had seen the first Halloween Town one time prior to our review of the film. You had never seen it before. I have not seen any of the sequels. You have not seen any of the sequels prior to now. I really very much enjoyed Halloween Town. You didn't love it, nor hate it, nor like it. It was sort of just a movie that existed for you. Exactly. So how excited were you when we dug back into Halloween Town for this entire month of October, basically? I wasn't. I went back and I listened to our review of Halloween Town and I'm sitting there thinking like I really didn't have a lot of positive things to say about the film and we really ripped apart some of the the character interactions and the way they built the story off of them and I was like oh gosh what are we in for for this whole month also I thought there were only two sequels oh you didn't know there was a third no we got three weeks of this surprise surprise no but you're right it has a huge cult following I saw one of those Facebook ads the other day for you know they have all these cutesy girly Halloween shirts and the one that I saw said Sanderson sisters Lydia Dietz and Marnie Piper And I was like, are you kidding me? How dare you put Marnie in that same group? It should be Wednesday Adams. I think that you are treading on some very, very, very thin ice right now. Um, Because a lot of people will argue. I I actually will argue with you on that. But we're going to save the argument. Because at this point now, we're just rehashing the first Halloween Down movie. Um, <laughs> well, the, these are just general feelings, which I will say, I don't like having them in a film with Debbie Reynolds. Okay, fair enough. Does Debbie Reynolds carry Halloween Town 2 the way she carries Halloween Town 1? We'll discuss. So we are two years removed from the first movie. Aggie has moved in, but still fights with Gwen. But it's Halloween night, the only night that the Cromwells can pass through the portal to go back to Halloween Town. As they host a Halloween night party, we learn that Marnie will need to go to Halloween Town for a year to finish her training with Aggie. We meet Cal and his father Alex, new neighbors who wanted to introduce themselves. While giving Cal a tour of their home, she shows him Aggie's bedroom 
and Cal steals her spell book. We also see that he makes plans to take her to the high school Halloween party, and he presents her with a rose. This is very important for the story. We see that he is, in fact, a warlock, and that some of the magic that Aggie uses in her everyday life starts to wear off. She decides to go back to Halloween Town to check everything out and takes Marnie with her. Marnie, too, sees that her magic isn't working and that the bus that usually takes them to Halloween Town is not arriving. So she and Aggie summon the portal and return to Halloween Town, but they must be back in the human realm within four hours, before midnight, or they are stuck in Halloween Town until the next human calendar year, which I think they said is like centuries in Halloween Town. So, it's at that point that back at the party, Alex asks Gwen to be his date to the dance, and she agrees. Aggie and Marnie arrive to Halloween Town to see that everything and everyone are turning gray, and that people or monsters, I should say, are turning into quote-unquote humans. We see Luke, and he no longer looks like an ogre. Instead, he looks the way that he did when Calabar cast a spell on him in the first movie, so that is very concerning within itself. Aggie believes that she can reverse this curse or spell with a spell of her own, but they realize that the spellbook is missing, and Cal must have taken it. They then try to summon the portal, but it will not come back. We learn that Cal is Calabar's son, and he will avenge his father and take over the human realm. Marnie refuses to help Cal, so he leaves them stranded in Halloween Town. They go back to Aggie's to find her spare spell book, um, but then they realize that that was lost, and it likely ended up at Gort's house, because everything that is lost ends up at Gort's house. Luke turns back into a goblin, not an ogre, my apologies, and it shows that Cal's spells are already starting to wear off. At Gort's house, we learn that the book was sold at a yard sale to who else? Calabar. We also see that Aggie is turning gray, and they are now trapped at Gort's. This is all something that Cal devised up on his own. And he reappears, and he tells them that he did set up this trap, and that Gwen will be at the dance with his father, Alex. So uh, clearly, Gwen is his next target. They realize that Cal is not only targeting Gwen, but he's going to turn all of the humans at the high school into the creatures that they are dressed as. In other words, if they're dressed as a werewolf, they become a werewolf. If they're a witch, they become a witch, etc., and so forth. Sophie realizes that Alex is a golem, under Cal's spell, and that he's not really his father, and convinces Dylan to take her to the high school to save Gwen. Marnie tells Luke that they can't break the spell, but they may be able to find a backdoor similar to a computer hacker. They attempt a time travel spell. All of this happens in this movie. They attempt the time travel spell to escape, but Cal sets up a limbo spell. It's incredible. And he tries to get Marnie to join him. She uses the spell again and finds Luke. They are now traveling through time. They travel back to Gort's house prior to Cal's spell, and they tell Gort about the gray spell. I know this sounds very confusing. Imagine watching this for 90 minutes. Yeah, I'm wondering if we should have gone linear. Uh, I don't think it would have mattered. Too late now. <laughs> Gort tells them 
that Calabar had this spell book 50 years ago. So he has been planning this for a very long time. So Sophie and Dylan go to the dance to tell Gwen about Cal and Alex, but she doesn't believe them. She believes that these are just ideas that Aggie has put into their heads. Marnie and Luke figure out how to reverse the gray spell. However, they lose the time travel spell. It's like a video game put to silver screen. At the dance, Sophie exposes Alex as a golem, so Gwen turns him back into the pile of frogs that he actually is. She also realizes that unless Marnie returns within the next 10 minutes, she will be stuck in Halloween Town until the next calendar Halloween. Gort shows them a timeline that a wizard had lost and wound up at his house. So Marnie and Luke hop on her broom to fly back to present day in the human realm using the timeline as their highway. At the high school, Cal unleashes the creature spell on everyone. Knowing that they're running out of time, Marnie and Luke fly into a black hole to speed up time. I'm not making this up. They arrive in the present day, fix Aggie. This is present day in Halloween Town. They fix Aggie and they summon the portal back to the human realm. However, they have run out of time. Marnie, willing to break the rules of Merlin, calls Sophie through a skull that they call a headphone, and they convince her and Dylan to create a new spell, and they reopen the portal, and Aggie agrees, but reluctantly. When the spell works, Marnie re-enters the human realm. She literally takes Aggie's spell books from Cal. She just pulls them out of his hand. And he vanishes from the human realm, though he is still alive. They reverse the creature spell, and everything returns to normal in the human realm, and then they return to Halloween Town, sans Gwen, of course, because Gwen is just never going to get on board with anything that they do, no matter how many sequels there are. And they restore Halloween Town back to, well, whatever Halloween Town's normal is. Um, You're am, right there? I'm sweating. <laughs> Having, uh, like, I'm sweating having gotten through that plot synopsis. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. I appreciate that they start with a recap. Yes, they they basically give you the Cliff's Notes version of the first movie. No, and normally I don't like that kind of exposition but here especially because I hadn't seen Halloween Town since we reviewed it last year for the show I definitely appreciated a little refresher well especially too because there was no Disney Plus in 2001 when this came out I don't know that there was a large home video release unless you caught it on rerun there was no on demand so I guess three years removed because the first movie was 98 this is three years later although it's two years in their world I guess a refresher was worth it. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. I haven't seen a lot of movies do that. And I, too, even though I have watched Halloween Town a few dozen times, I'm not lying about that since last year because the more I watch it, the more I love it. Um, even I did appreciate that. However, there is something to be said for when you watch the original so many times and Speaking for me, I think the original is better than Hocus Pocus. I said it on the show. I'll say it again now. For somebody who loves the first movie so much, 
immediately. I am just not about the fact that Gwen and Aggie are fighting again. They seem to have rectified this at the end of the first Halloween Town movie where Gwen says she will train Marnie and they invite Aggie to come live with them. It is almost as if the end of the first movie did not happen. Right. And then they bothered to recap it. So in theory, that would be a good setup, but you basically just negated the whole thing. I don't understand why Gwen is pushing back again after she agreed to train uh, Marnie. I don't understand why she is against this Halloween party. I don't know why she thinks her children are against her now. I don't know why she has this animosity with Aggie. I liked Gwen in the first movie, other than the fact that all she kept saying is, there are things you just don't understand. But I don't blame Judith Hogue for that. I blame sloppy screenwriting, and I do love the first movie, but that was the one of the big gripes I had with it. I don't understand. You want to talk about there are so many things that you don't understand? I don't understand where. We not only regressed Gwen to where she was at the beginning of the first Halloween Town film, but I feel like she's even two steps further behind. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I could see if we were a little bit farther along in this timeline as far as Marnie's training, because they do mention that after high school, she's going to go spend the year in Halloween Town to complete training with her grandmother. So I could understand if she were packing up and leaving where Gwen would have this attitude towards her. But here, she's still got as we come to learn in the sequel, several years of high school to finish. Um, So they're not even close to that point yet. I guess it has to do, and I do like that they did this. They brought Aggie in to live with them. So now all of these years of frustration and the strain on their relationship comes to a head because they are under the same roof. So I get it in that regard, but what they're arguing about it doesn't really make sense. It did for the first one, but the fact that we've carried it over and their relationship hasn't grown and they're back to exactly where they started, that's where it starts going off the rails. I think what they were trying to do was set up Marnie maturing a little bit more and even Sophie maturing because after the first fight, they're like, all right, you get mom, I got grandma. Yeah, they've done this before. Right, and they go to comfort them respectively, but building one relationship was not worth crushing the other one. And here's the thing. If they would have had a throwaway line about, Mom, I've had this conversation with you, with you before, and you did it on 4th of July. You know, I'm, I'm making up something stupid, but th- th- there's no... It's not as if they've given you any backstory through dialogue to show that they've worn on each other, that Aggie is not understanding that she is in the human realm and that she can't produce magic the way she's used to doing it in Halloween Town. There's just nothing there that justifies this. Especially because it's taking place at a Halloween party. This this is what makes the least amount of sense. Because if Gwen 
conceded to throwing this party, even though we established in the first one she doesn't love Halloween, but then she kind of comes around to it because the girls are are very much into it. Um, Even Dylan begrudgingly joins the Cromwells and takes his place. So it doesn't make sense that she's kind of loosened the reins on Marnie a little bit, but she's still not into the idea of, of the celebration of the whole thing. Right. Now, this is all happening within the first five minutes of the movie, so this is problematic. And you mentioned it, you hit the nail right on the head. She's doing this on Halloween night, the one night where their behavior should be acceptable, where it should be allowed. I mean, to the point where Aggie is giving away hats and and Halloween attire to the children at the party, and Gwen takes it away and says, dress up's over. Is it November 1st, Gwen? Why is It's Halloween. It is the one night a year you get to dress up. It's like so much of this makes zero sense. Right, and to me, I think I would appreciate her more if she embraced the holiday because it's a spoof of their whole culture. And to touch on something you just mentioned about Dylan, at the end of the first movie, reluctantly... He takes his place amongst the Cromwells as a warlock. He does the same thing that Gwen does in mm-hmm. this movie. I don't like Halloween. I'm not into Halloween. I don't want to do this. I'm the normal one. This regression makes no sense. I mean, I get it a little bit because he's a teenage boy. He's trying to get a date with a girl. So... I kind of understand where if he where he's trying to play it like too cool for school. But again, it negates the first one, especially when and this was one of my biggest criticisms of the first one that we're Cromwell's rally cry completely out the window by this point. Absolutely. I mean, I, they did a few things here that were really good. I think that Aggie is still the best character in the series, you get that from her right away. And some of that is Debbie Reynolds, but a lot of that is the way that the character is written. She is written very well. I think Marnie is written very well. I think Sophie is written very well. So they're all great in the beginning. What happens with Gwen and Dylan, I don't quite understand. The same way I don't quite understand, and maybe it's just because you've seen a million movies strangers that just invite themselves over to somebody's house Mm -hmm. and i mean you don't trust cal from the minute you see him and that could be the way that it's played it could be the way that it's written it could be the way that you've seen a million movies like i said before but i don't understand why somebody who's new to the neighborhood they don't know the people it's one thing to come over and knock on the door hey we want to introduce ourselves and they get invited in but they show up with ice cream okay it's nice they come with a housewarming gift but I, do, I mean, who just invites themselves over? I mean, ultimately, it's so that he can still the, steal the spell book. But I, I think I would have appreciated it more if it would have been a vampire-ish situation where a vampire, if you watch Halloween movies, and if you're in October, you should be watching a ton of them, they can't just enter your home. They must be invited in. Mm. And I know that Cal's not a vampire, but I would have liked that angle a little bit more than just somebody showing up out of nowhere and, look, I have ice cream and you don't know who I am. What they should have done 
and I get it. He's too old to be trick or treating himself because that would be the most obvious thing, right? Is they're trick or treating, and yeah. then oh, we're the new neighbors. Well, Wait, come on he's in. He's clearly sixteen or seventeen years old. Instead of making the golem into his father, and I, I get it. You did have to distract Gwen. I think it almost could have been better suited if he did like a little brother to sort of distract Sophie. I yeah, I I, I mean, I have no problem with him using Alex to distract Gwen, but I certainly would have I could have lived with that with somebody distracting Sophie because Sophie starts in again with the somebody's coming like she did in the first movie. So it would have been interesting if they tried to throw her off the path because you're seeing that Sophie is starting to get much stronger with her powers as well. So it may have suited them better to throw something at her. It would have created more of a conflict at the end as well. Absolutely, no doubt about that. Um, I said before, you don't trust Cal as soon as you see him, but I do feel very bad for Marnie here that she gets baited. Now, part of the bad screenwriting with Gwen could be that they want you to feel bad for Aggie, but just the way that the, the the way that that Aggie is written in the way that Debbie Reynolds plays her, she's so endearing that I don't think you needed to really go out of your way to create sympathy for her. Marnie, on the other hand, very well written, well acted. Kimberly J. Brown does a fantastic job with her. But you start to feel for her because now it, it's sort of a coming of age moment right. where Marnie is starting to date or she wants to date, but she knows that she's different from everyone else. So you want so badly for her to fit in, for her to be accepted that when this happens, I think it's impossible not to feel for her because she is such a likable character and should have her own t-shirt. Oh my gosh. I'm just saying. Maybe her own t-shirt, but I don't think that she should be recognized in the ranks of the Sanderson sisters and Lydia Dietz. Wrong. <laughs> I just have to say. Cult following versus Halloween icons. No way. All right. We're going to agree to disagree here. One thing I don't think that we're going to disagree on, though, and it's, I mean, it happens. There's a few really nice sets throughout the movie. There's a few really bad sets throughout the movie. But the best set in the movie is Aggie's bedroom. I love the set build here. I love the candelabras. I love everything about this. No, and it doesn't look kitschy either. No. It's very believable. I like it a lot. Yeah, totally believable. I think what you expect, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, I almost feel like you're expecting to see something like Madame Leota's room. Mm-hmm. Because that is a little kitschy, but it's supposed to be. So I'm glad they didn't go that route. Yeah. Um, what doesn't make sense, what doesn't fit in, and what does feel fake are two things I want to talk about here. First off, the sign, the big paper sign that they have strung across the room that says, Hola, amigo. <laughs> I, I, listen, I get that Like at, at the end of the movie, um, Dylan dresses up. In I, I don't know, what do you want to call It's not a mariachi. You want to call him a desperado? We'll call him a desperado. He, des he dresses up in the outfit that's on the mannequin. Mm. But this literally looks like they needed something 
to make it look festive, and they went and raided the Cinco de Mayo clearance section at Party City. Why would you not have a sign that says Happy Halloween? I mean, it is the most basic decoration you could find, and it's a movie called Halloween Town 2. It's so jarring. I mean, I could even understand if they went with Day of the Dead, but you picked... Yes. You certainly picked the wrong holiday here. But seriously, were you out of Halloween decorations? I don't... I, I got nothing. I Like, it does not make sense at all. No, but, I or unless they blew them all on the dance set. But And that's the other thing. That really bothers me. Who throws a party the same night as a school dance? Like, what were you going to do? Kick everyone out at 7 o'clock? And then you're going to start a school dance at, what, 9? I mean... I know they do it for the adults, but they do the same thing in Hocus Pocus. They have a dance, the town dance on Halloween night for the adults. Right, but I'm saying they scheduled a house party on the same night as a dance. Uh, yeah, all right. I, Why would you. you do that? Fine. Yeah, that, that doesn't make a ton of sense either. I also think it would have served. I, I do like what they did here as far as making it a time travel movie. And we're working almost in real time because there's like a four hour window that they have to get everything done. Yeah. But I almost feel like it would have been more effective if it was a 24 hour window. So you have their party on Friday night, especially when... Alex and Cal are asking for dates and it's like, all right, I'll see you in an hour. And then you're going to what leave and then pick them up again. Yeah. It's, it's all very, very strange. Um, if a dude ever did that to me, I'd be like, no, just stay home. Right. It, it, it doesn't make sense. No. Uh, before we go ahead here. Yeah, um, sorry. I jumped a little. I did. I will say as you watch the movie, this time travel, dimension jumping, it plays out better on screen than it reads on paper. It's very confusing. It's like, it's like Escape to Witch Mountain. It's very confusing to read, but it's easy to watch. Right, because they do it very smartly with the devices, which we kind of skipped over when we were talking about um, Aggie's room, is that she has the crystal ball and that's how she's looking back on Halloween Town, and she's checking in on all her friends. I like that they did that. I like that they gave her a little bit of longing, even though she is with her family. It's not a perfect scenario because she's still fighting with her daughter, even though you know she loves being with her grandchildren. I like that they kind of gave her this push and pull as yeah. far as where she belongs. Something that I was alluding to before that I wanted to get to in terms of things that do not make sense in this movie... And it just works as a device to make Gwen dislikable, which I hate to say because Gwen's not a dislikable character, or at least she shouldn't be. She's trying clearly to silence Sophie or keep Sophie removed because she's trying to keep Sophie normal. She's trying to keep her human. You have a house filled with what has to be no less than 40 kids. And you tell Sophie it's bedtime. It's bedtime during a party on Halloween when all of the other kids in your house get to stay up and party. Right. This isn't like Full House where it's Michelle go to bed and you can kind of write it off because she was so young and it's a 30-minute sitcom, so there's a lot of other things to focus on. This Night, is Michelle. 
Exactly. This is so jarring because there's a house full of people. So how is this kid going to sleep anyway? Plus, it's Halloween. Let her stay up and celebrate. But oh, wait, the house is going to be void of kids in about an hour because they're all supposedly going to this dance. Yeah. So I guess in a weird way, it does come full circle and make sense for Sophie to go to bed. But it it doesn't work. No. And the movie feels dated here, even with some of the music that they're playing at this party. I mean, oh, boy. 2001 wannabe boy bands. It... In, in spite of some of the lousy makeup and some of the lousy special effects in the first film in the franchise... Some of that gets written off as 1998 and some of it gets written off as cheap because it was very low budget. I said then, and I stand by now, I don't feel the first Halloween Town film feels dated. This, to me, feels really dated. And it seems to me that they were trying to jump on the boy band thing and get a radio hit out of this movie. Oh, they absolutely were. And it just does not work. You know what else does not work? The change in set. Changing the set of Halloween Town fails for more reasons than we have time to discuss on this show. But I will try to sum it up briefly, which for me is a damn stretch. This fails because, number one, how much construction could you have possibly done in three years? Right. Okay. That's number one. It is clear to me that they tried to stuff this movie into a soundstage. It looks terrible. More than anything else, what I loved so much about Halloween Town aesthetically in the first film, it reminded me, and I didn't make this comparison when we watched the film or reviewed it, it reminded me of Hill Valley from Back to the Future. It was picturesque. It was pretty. It's small town USA, but it's juxtaposed against this very, very cool alternate universe. The fact that you take all of that away and you basically just condense it to a courtyard is staggering to me. I don't understand why you would make this change. It doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. And it does more to make the first movie feel obsolete. I have a theory, but before I get to that and give you the production standpoint, okay, um, I will agree with you because to me, the set is what I did really enjoy about the first one. It makes it a lot of fun. Um, and you're right. It does give it that small town charm feel. It was originally shot in Oregon, but to me, it reminds me of Main Street USA with the Halloween decorations. It reminds me of what should be in a Marceline, Missouri kind of feel. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate anything that mirrors what what Walt believed in and, sure. and his values. Um, here, the changes make it look, I think, a lot more like Salem, definitely more Northeastern than any town USA. I think they got a little bit sp too specific with it. Um, 
but my theory is that, of course, it's always going to go back to budget, but even more so from the production standpoint, they do everything in the grayscale. And when they start, and I kind of wish that they had just stuck with this, they did it in post. Um, I don't believe that they just went ahead and shot it in black and white because it's still picking up different colors in the hair and different parts of people's costumes are still vibrant. But you can tell in the background of the buildings, they didn't sit there and paint every single brick gray. You can just tell it's a filter on it. Later on, as we get into like Gort's house and when Luke is going back and forth, yeah, that they did practical with makeup and the clothes. Um, so I kind of wish that they had just gone one way or the other with it. Right, because I actually, I actually like how everything is grayed out when you get there. Everything but the Cromwells. Um, obviously, they stand out, but I like this spell. And what I love is the caricature of humans. I love that they kind of take this idea that we caricature monsters on Halloween and they turn it on its head and now the monsters are a caricature of humans and that sensible shoes are smart and everything's dull and nothing's whimsical. I really like the approach they took here. Yeah, I think story-wise and as a metaphor, I think that was a really cool choice. Yeah. But... To sum it up, I think that's why the set got so small is because just to make that effect happen, they kind of needed to shrink everything down. Let's play a game here. CGI or bad acting? When Cal starts speaking to oh. them, okay, he appears on that wall, that that like cinder block wall that is built around the giant jack-o'-lantern. By the way, what a horrible cop-out. It's so stupid. Um, the actor who plays Cal is not a bad actor. He's very good in the rest of the movie. Here, though, he is so mechanical and robotic. So is it poorly acted? Or is it bad CGI that they were trying to give exposition to? That's tough. Um, I think, I don't think it's so much that I, I think it's because it's a combination of a practical and a CGI effect. I think that they put him in the white makeup and they had to shoot it very tight to get it on that white wall. Otherwise you'd have a horrible halo of green around his face where the green screen is poking through. Um, so I don't think that that was him so much as it was that they had to shoot him really tight. He just seems stiff, right? Absolutely. Um, but I like how they tie things back to the first movie. As soon as you get into Halloween town, I like that we get Luke again. And I think that Luke's face piece, it was a face piece that I really liked in the first movie. I think it's even better here. Now it could be because the actor has grown up a little bit. So his, his, as funny as this sounds, his face has grown into the face piece a little bit more. It doesn't look so big on him. It doesn't look like he's wearing a mask. 
But I think that was really well done. I think the makeup overall is so much better in this film because that was one of my biggest criticisms of the first one is that you're entering a town called Halloween Town and these look like masks that you can buy at Party City. They look like really cheap Halloween masks. So I think they definitely stepped it up as far as, you know, just enhancing the features instead of doing like a gigantic piece that just goes over your head like a bag. Right, because for the most part, that's what this movie is about. It, you know, when, when it comes to the makeup and and the uh, the characters, you don't have quite as many of the whimsical, dare I even say Burton-esque at times, characters in this one that you do in the first one. No, and I did miss that. And that was actually something, something again. you hated, and now you missed it. <laughs> yeah. I was very critical of it when we reviewed it, was that you're meeting all of these characters, and you see, that was it. I, I appreciated that they all had a function, but my criticism was that you're in Halloween Town. Why is it not more like Nightmare Before Christmas, where, you know, it's one person's job, like, instead of a barber, maybe you're making shrunken heads, Or instead of, well, Nightmare did have a mayor too, but they, I feel like everyone's job should not have been a normal job that you would see in everyday life. And it should have been geared specifically towards Halloween. Like maybe you don't have a a wood, a woodworker, but you have a pumpkin carver instead. That's what I wanted to see more of. But I will say that I did miss seeing it in any capacity in this film because Aside from the fact that they've dulled down the characters, you don't get that scavenger hunt where you're in and out of all the shops and you are meeting all these different people. Yeah. Let's talk about Gort for a second, because he's one of the very few new characters that we are introduced to in this movie. He might be one of the best characters that we've seen in the first two movies. Certainly one of the best actors, I think, because I love how he plays both extremes, the dull human and and the whimsical Gort. And he's able to switch back and forth. I mean, obviously, they're, it's different cuts because he, he has different makeup, he has different outfits, so they're cutting back and forth, but it is so seamless the way that he plays both extremes. I really, really enjoyed this character here. I agree with everything that you said, yeah, the the actor is excellent, um, and I like that they're so vastly different. Yeah, he loves the fact that his, you know, Gort, as he is, loves the mess. But then human Gort wants to tidy everything up. He's wearing a suit. He's wearing a suit, and I have to make sure all my socks are matched. It's so... But it's like, it is like if you gave Danny Tanner Valium. That is what this <laughs> character is, and it's absolutely brilliant. The socks are a great running bit, by the way, because, yeah, think about it. What do you always lose? You always end up with the one sock, and that's the joke, is that nobody knows where it goes. It gets lost in the washing machine and sucked through a portal, for all you know. Sure. But I love that they gave that theory a, a tangible ending. Yeah. And then they get stuck you know, it's almost like a um, a purgatory trying to match these socks. Yes, it's true. It's really, really good. Um, let's talk about this time travel and the timeline specifically. 
they make mention of Merlin, Merlin, Merlin throughout the movie and the rules of Merlin. I like that. I like it. I like that you can actually tie this back to another Disney film. I like that you can tie this back to the sword and the stone where Merlin does jump between time and space. Not that they make that connection. It's just the connection that I made, which I really, really enjoyed. I had a good laugh and a a nice smile on my face over that the more I thought about it. But if they're trying to time travel to stop Cal, if they're trying to find the book, if they're trying to get to the point where Aggie is no longer under the gray spell, why did they wait as far into the movie as they did for Gort to offer it? If you have a, you literally, if they, if, if the, if the ultimate goal is, gee, we need to go back to such and such a date. Well, it just so happens that I have this time travel vehicle, but I'm not going to tell you about it for a half an hour. Yeah, this is where the pacing of the movie completely goes off the rails, because I think the setup was good up until this point. But Gort holding back that piece of information, coupled with the fact that the second act has so many dialogue heavy scenes because of all the time travel, the movie kind of starts crashing and burning here for me the other big error with all of the time travel is not even the jumps through time it's the jump into present because i don't know if you picked up on this halloween town is always daytime yes it is in the first one and then this one they leave at night because they're supposed to be going to the party so it's like eight nine o'clock but it's daytime when they get to halloween town I never picked up on that. Until you pointed it out to me here, I never picked up on that. I don't know if that's supposed to be part of the alternate universe. That's something we're going to have to look out for in the next two. Yeah, I think that you're right here. Um, Let's go back into the human realm. Actually, no, I want to make one more point before we go to the human realm. We're going to stay in Halloween Town for a minute here. What I really like here is that they keep bringing up Calabar. Now, I know Cal is supposed to be Calabar's son. And the movie is called Calabar's Revenge. And it can be a little confusing because it's Calabar's Revenge, therefore you assume that Calabar's going to be in the movie. Here's the thing. Calabar's Revenge, the the spelling of Calabar in the second movie completely different from the spelling of Calabar in the first movie. So they trick you. Mm. They trick you. Because it's not Calabar's revenge, it's Cal's revenge. Right. Revenge for his father. So that is not overtly explained. You just kind of need to be up on your Halloween town to pick up on that. Mm -hmm. But I do like how they bring it back to him and how they bring it back to the fact that this was not just a fly-by-night plan for Calabar. If this, this movie does a lot to negate a lot of things in the first movie. I'm not going to say that it hurts the first movie, because the first movie is, so, is vastly better than this. But I like that for all of the problems that it causes with the first movie, this storyline where he has been planning this for decades 
makes him so much stronger as a villain. I like him as a villain in the first movie. I like him more in retrospect, having seen the second movie. See, I think this ends up hurting itself because they give you the throwaway line in the beginning that her bag isn't working, so she wants to go back to check on it. If the only if if that was supposed to be the device that got Aggie back to Halloween Town, that's all you had to do. I feel like the thing with two books and Calabar had one and the wild goose chase where they go searching for the book, but then Gorg was supposed to have the copy and and he had gotten rid of it already. I feel like this just gets so overly complicated. Um it does, it does, and it doesn't. I'm talking strictly from a character perspective. For all the bad they did with Gwen, for all the bad they did with Dylan, because I think that they totally squashed opportunities here, I think they did it right with Calabar. Which I think further infuriates me that they made the mistakes that they made with Gwen and Dylan. Well, I guess that's it too. Instead of making it his son, because we are in a time travel movie, I kind of wish that it was him, his younger self traveling through time. That would have been really interesting. I don't know that it would have worked because how would he would have, how would he have known to travel into the future? The future. I have some more about time travel in a minute here. There's something else I want to talk about, but I do want to get back on time travel in a few minutes. Yeah, me too. Um, I think we're going to say the same thing about the time travel. Because they broke the first rule of it. Which is what? Don't interact and don't touch anything? Yeah, and there's no way they didn't see themselves. Um, That's, that's actually not what I had. So let's actually put a pin in that i want to hear what you have to say about that but i'm going to put a pin in what i have to say about it okay no okay. well that was it but i i guess that kind of goes hand in hand with what we're talking about as far as cal knowing that he had to be there because if we're going to break the rules my theory is that he would have seen himself at some point Okay, we're going to go down. I'll say I have a counterpoint to that, but I want to get off of this because we'll be on a slippery slope that never ends. If he goes into the future and he sees what he did wrong, he knows as an adolescent what he did wrong. So he grows up with that knowledge. Therefore, he doesn't he make that mistake it. as an adult. Yeah, it, it's like uh, Back to the Future 2 where Biff gets the lottery ticket. It, it, where he gets the, 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 the almanac, the sports yes, almanac. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. All right, but we're, I want to just leave that because we could really go down into a rabbit hole and open Pandora's box. And, and these people, you could drive from wherever you live to Disney World and not finish this podcast. Some of you could go, like if you're Brendan and Catherine, you could <laughs> go Alabama. You could go all the way back to Tennessee and come all the way back and, and not finish this episode if we just go on about this topic. No, we do have to get off of it. But that is what bothers me about this movie is that I kind of wish you had picked one or the other. You had either picked a time travel movie or you had picked we're searching for the lost book, but not both jumping through time. Yes, and this is what sets up my next point about the time travel. We go back into the human realm. This is what I started saying. Oh, it was probably, I want to say a few minutes ago. Now it was probably 10 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> you go back to the human realm. We're back at the dance. We're back in the high school. 
And I don't know if it's the principal who's hosting the party. They start to count backwards to the stroke of midnight. Ugh. Who starts at 60? Oh, my God. Now, I understand for the purpose of the movie, they're trying to give you context as to how much time is left to add drama to the fact that Luke and Marnie may not be able to get back, and that's what leads them into this black hole. However, you have a time travel spell. You have used it to go back in time five minutes. Five minutes, not five minutes in real time. You went back, no, they did. They went back five minutes in real time because they. that was the scene you're talking about where they're watching their previous interaction and he's saying what kind of spells this is only five minutes ago and she's like well I'm, I'm still learning how to use it right it wasn't strong enough to get them farther back okay then they go too far so, so guess what you own a time travel spell it doesn't matter if the calendar turns to november 1st and that you would be stuck in halloween town because you have a time travel spell if you could travel back five minutes you could travel back a half an hour. You could travel back two days. You have a time travel spell. Use it. Use it! See, I didn't even pick up on that because it is so unbelievably distracting to me counting down from 60. 30 is even egregious, but who does that? You don't even do that on New Year's. No, you start at 10. Exactly. Um... I mean, counting it out loud, you start at 10. Right. But if you have a time travel spell, use it, folks. Marnie, you're very smart. Use it. I think part of that idea, though, as far as wanting to see them stuck inside the school dance is because they so blatantly ripped off of Hocus Pocus, where the parents get stuck because the Sanderson sisters do their song and dance, and they cast the spell on the town. Yeah, dance until you die. Exactly. And I feel like they sort of wanted to recreate that here by getting the town stuck. Now, when Cal does cast the spell on the town, this is the best makeup in this movie, by far. When he puts the creature spell on the humans, this is really, really good makeup and good practical. It's good. Is it the best I've ever seen? No. I feel like it could have been a little bit better. Um, but I, I like the idea behind it is that they've got these caricature masks of what the humans think Halloween is, and now they're going to be stuck in that form. Right. Um, I think some characters like Dylan's love interest for lack of a better word could have been embellished a little bit more because she just looks like she did her own makeup for Halloween and she kind of gets a little vampire-esque. I think Gwen's is the best because you have that really ghoulish but at the same time goofy looking mask and the way that that transforms her into a goblin, that's really cool. Yeah, it's excellent. When it comes time to break the rules of Merlin and recite the spell together. At this point, they have put the headphone down, and I don't quite understand. Oh, no, or are they still on the headphone? Either way, it doesn't make a difference, because they are 
this is now Dylan, Marnie, Sophie, Luke, who has no powers, but they needed a believer, and Aggie. They are all they are creating a spell to make the portal reappear and open. That can be used anytime. Anytime. Instead of just on Halloween. So now you're free to come and go whenever you want. How nobody else thought of this, I don't understand. How nobody else would have used this like a Calabar to break the rules of Merlin for their own selfish gain, I don't understand. But we're going to just set that aside. No, wait. You really, you love this movie so much and you did not pick up on it? I love what movie so much? Halloween Town. The first movie. Right, but they establish it as that they wanted peace in Halloween Town. So they kind of wanted their own secret society there. Yeah, I know that. And that's why they wouldn't want a portal. Right, I know that. But never once does a villain like Calabar think, I'll just open the portal whenever I want. Oh, a villain. All right, I'll give you that one. Okay. Um... But what makes no sense here more than anything is you are you are creating a spell that has never been recited before. And yet all five of you, unrehearsed, know every single word and say it in unison. Do, are, are, you, are you communicating through telepathy? How is it that all of you, in unison, you don't miss a beat word for word? I think they did have the headphone the first time Sophie says it. But she says, like, three things. She doesn't say this big, long-winded spell that they recite. Right. So no, it it's make not sense. like the first one. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely get what you're saying. All right, so they get back to the high school, and they confront Cal. And I, I said before, the makeup was really good in this scene. I think we can both agree that as much as I defended some of the bad makeup in the first movie, the makeup in this film is all around better than it was in the first movie. I think we can both agree on that. Definitely. Okay. Cal, when he has his costume, when he's got his cloak on, you expect... Because Calabar's costume and his makeup in the first Halloween Town are outstanding. You expect to see something like that. This looks like something they picked up on clearance at Spirit Halloween three days after Halloween. It looks really bad. In fact, I'm probably giving it too much credit. Probably didn't buy it at Spirit Halloween. You probably bought it at a CVS or a Rite Aid. It is, the cloak they give him is awful. No, I, I constantly question where they choose to spend their budget because this is the equivalent of the Cinco de Mayo decorations at the Halloween party Terrible. in the first scene. Awful. And, you know, we were talking about it before. The grayscale looks so cool when they do it with the filter in post-production. But when they're raiding Aggie's house looking for the book, the practical effects look great. They painted everything gray. And, and they did a good job with that because it's different shades of gray. It definitely gives the different props in the sets uh, different, you know, shade and texture. But they do it for, like, half the stuff. That's why when they're looking for the book, Marnie and Aggie only tear apart the one room. And as they're tearing through, the stuff that they're taking out of the drawers, they didn't bother to make those props gray. So you have like pops of color everywhere. Um, so yeah, for, for that and the makeup, especially because the grayscale is such a big part of the story, you should have really 
paid more attention to those kinds of details. And especially when, when Cal's your villain. Yeah. You can't put him in a cheap... It's like the equivalent of the, the frog costume that Alex is wearing. I give that a pass, though, because... It's supposed to look hokey. Yeah, it is. But I, I get what you mean, though. Which, by the way, we didn't talk about that. Um, I didn't pick up on it at all the first time we watched it. But the second time, once you know he's the Gollum, I just thought he was like kind of a weird, creepy guy with all of the these frog sayings and, and green things that he's obsessing over. Uh, so that's really well done. Yeah. Because once you realize how many lines that he has where he keeps talking about her green eyes and... They're like lily pads. Uh, yeah. I thought it was such a weird thing to say and I was like, oh no, they were they were dropping those breadcrumbs all over the place. Where they did drop breadcrumbs early in a movie, it was smart. I, I absolutely think so. The ending of this movie is so anticlimactic. Yeah. Marnie literally just pulls the two books out of his hands and he screams and vanishes. Um, why? I mean, you actually had to defeat Calabar. Here, you just took his books away? It would have been nice if they sent him through the horrible CGI portal. And then maybe that could set up your third because now you've just sent him to Halloween Town. They can't necessarily get back. Well, I mean, they can because they can go back and forth through the portal that they just created. But it's it's like you're setting up people that you care about and now they have to deal with him. Right. Like you would think that that would lead to the next movie. Which I have to imagine at this point they know they're going to do. Right. So I guess we're going to find out next week if that actually comes to fruition or not. But really, really, really lame ending. Um... Do you have any other notes on this film before we go into our, our final review? No. Okay. I guess I'll go first. Sure. Okay. So I love Halloween Town. I love the first one. I love everything about the first one. So sitting down to watch this, I was so excited. And... Is it why I scrutinized everything they did in this movie so heavily? You can make the case for that. I think anytime anybody really loves a film, they're going to scrutinize a sequel, especially when they get things wrong. Let me talk about a couple of the things that they got right. Obviously, we talked about the makeup and, and, and some of the caricatures of the humans, but I think what this film does best of all is that it builds the relationship between Luke and Marnie. I like how they built on that from the first movie. I thought as a duo, they were great. Um, and that's about as far as I can go in terms of talking about all of the good stuff. The bad stuff, I've already run through it. I think watching this movie more and more, you know, as we did watch it a couple of times this week, the movie got better the second time around. I think part of that is because it does play out pretty well on screen. It's better on screen than it is on paper, as I mentioned before, but it's still convoluted the first time you see it. But it could have been better. It should have been better. And I think when you have a movie as good as the first one, and when all of the characters in the first movie, as much as you didn't love it, even you can admit they all had a proper character arc. 
the fact that that happens in the first and you do virtually nothing to build on it. I mean, these characters are basically the exact same thing that they were in the first. Some of them are worse off. That, to me, is the most egregious mistake they made in Halloween Town 2. I would definitely agree with you. Uh, I will start off by saying I love Debbie Reynolds. Uh, this isn't going to be pretty. No. <laughs> uh, there's, there's really nothing that I take away from this film other than a fun performance by her. And I definitely appreciate her. And I will say that I do even appreciate the first film a bit more now having seen this. Um, for me, I I don't like that there's no character growth from the first to the second. I definitely agree with you there. But what's worse for me is how unnecessarily complicated that this story gets to me. I, I thought it was a really interesting idea to put the time limit on them that they have to get this done before midnight. Uh, and I wish that we could have just stayed in that context in real time where they're rushing to get it done and they're rushing to find this book to make it back. I don't think that they were intending to rip off back to the future, but where they start to tiptoe into pulling from the time travel they don't follow through because they don't talk about what the stakes are going to be if they don't succeed I mean yes you know that that Cal is going to win and and you understand that it's going to affect the real world but they don't talk about how it's going to change the present it's they're just talking about it in the context of well the villain wins and everybody that we care about is is in big trouble um so they totally lose that element of resetting the timeline and they could have circled back around to what that could mean for Halloween town if he succeeds in the real world. And I thought that would have been a more interesting movie if you were going to stick with the time travel. I also would have been fine if it, if it was just stripped down bare bones, they need to find this other book in Halloween town. And they sort of did the scavenger hunt like they did the first time where they had to collect a bunch of things or maybe we see if you know Aggie was incapacitated because she's you know she's turning gray then maybe Marnie's got to take what she learned in the first one and now grow a little bit and she doesn't have her siblings by her side and she's got to start to harness her powers on her own um I think either of those options are preferable to what we have especially because the way that they had to tell this story, it became so dialogue heavy. They get stuck in Gort's house and while it's a cool set, and yes, while it is cool where he's jumping back and forth from grayscale to color once they figure out how the backwards spell works, there are so many dialogue things that are happening in that second act, like Sophie fig working out that Alex is a golem. And then subsequently, the next scene is when Marnie figures out how to reverse the spell. Those are both two very wordy scenes, only coming from one character at a time. It just kills the pacing of the whole thing. And I feel that's what I honestly remember most about this film is I feel like I got stuck in a time warp just getting sucked into those scenes and it, it just bothers me and it drags. Um, 
so for me, this one doesn't even come close to the first one, which I didn't love, but I, I will say that I do like it a little bit more now. Right. I agree. I, I think so. And, and we're interested in knowing what you have to say about it. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the Week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. All right, a little housekeeping this week. Um, we have a watch party coming up um, for the Nightmare Before Christmas. It's going to be on our Facebook page, so make sure you go and like us on Facebook at Monoreal Radio. It was supposed to be earlier this week, but hey, things happen, so it's actually going to happen now on Thursday, October the 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're going to hang out and we're going to do a Facebook uh, Live watch party and we're going to watch Nightmare on Disney+. Plus. So if you guys want to come by, please drop by, invite a friend because we do have a fun prize to give away. But you're going to have to watch to win the prize. And you're going to have to watch to figure out what the prize is. I'm not giving it away just yet. Not changing times. The monorail meetup at Dockside Margaritas. We would love to see you in Disney Springs on Sunday, October 25th at 3 p.m. for some drinks yep. and some movie discussions. Be hanging out and having a good time. You Socially can, distant, but we will be having a good time. You can criticize me from six feet away for my feelings on these movies. And you can criticize me six feet away um, in regards to my opinion of Hocus Pocus because apparently it's not a popular opinion. Who to thunk it? Another unpopular opinion is my lack of enthusiasm for the new Disney Plus drop. Oh. High School Musical, the musical, the holiday special. Oh, come on. Who doesn't love a good holiday special? Go ahead and ask the Star Wars universe. <laughs> yeah, what could go wrong? That's going to drop on Disney Plus on December 11th. Hey, I'm all for it. Why not? Listen, let's have a little bit of fun this holiday season. Why not? Why not a little High School Musical, the musical, the series? It's also going to include a sneak peek at the second season. Oh, joy. Ka-ching. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Jump over to monorealradio.com where you have links to every episode of the show. You can also like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. We will be back next week because we're going back to Halloween Town again. Except this time, it's high school. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.